0: to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty
1: Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. It's Jodi Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week's episode features Wendy Zomner. She's the founding partner of Urban Decay Cosmetics. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Emily Kulp. She's the CEO of Cover FX. I hope you enjoy the shows. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. I am thrilled to be joined with Wendy Zomner. She is the founding partner of Urban Decay Cosmetics. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am so happy to have you here. You are a goddess in my mind. I have known of you for so long, and I am um, a super fan. I wear a lipstick that's a very old lipstick that you make. I don't even think you make it anymore, but every time I wear it, people stop me on the street, no joke, sometimes multiple times a well, day. Well, you should
0: tell me what it is because maybe we'll make it again.
1: It's the Revolution Lipstick in Anarchy. Oh,
0: we still make
1: Anarchy. Oh, you do? Yes. Is it in that same, like, it's it's not a matte. It's It has a little bit of a satin
0: finish to it, and it is in
1: a slightly different case, but it is the same formula. The color is amazing. Yeah. Do you use the lip pencil with it? Um, no, but I have to start using lip pencils because I'm having aged skin.
0: Yeah. So you have the feathering. Mm-hmm. Um, But it also keeps the the lipstick on all day. Instead of having to wear one of those dry out long wear lipsticks, if you apply really carefully, take your time and use a lip pencil and then put the lipstick over it, I always say ultimate pair for ultra long wear.
1: So this is like a signature color for me. If you look at any photography that I'm in, I'm almost always wearing that lipstick.
0: Well, if you like Anarchy, I recommend you try Big Bang. It is a metallic version. Oh, fun. Yeah, it's really beautiful if you just want to, like, kind of add a little sizzle or something different to your look.
1: Cool. It's like, I, didn't, I don't know that I want to be fuchsia, but I just am fuchsia. Like, it just works for it me. It works for you.
0: Yeah. I usually i am often fuchsia. Today I'm red, but mm-hmm. I'm often fuchsia.
1: So we're going to chat about your, your whole journey, but first want to start with Minutia because it's sort of my favorite thing to do is okay. talk about the day-to-day. How are you spending your day today?
0: Um, today, I'm I'm running around the city. I did a f- interview on the phone already, so I'm doing a lot of PR stuff. You saw my little PR army that's here with me, and um, so I'm just going to be running around the city doing PR stuff.
1: Um, I think it would be fascinating to look back on your career since you started the business and started hiring publicists, to think of all the different people that you've shepherded through their careers as publicists, right? Like how many meetings you've taken where there have been team members be, beside you and like where they've gone off in the world after that? Yeah, I think
0: there have been, but I, my MO is I kind of stick with people for mm-hmm. a while. And so I've really only had two agencies here in New York in the whole time that I've done this. And a lot of the people at my current PR firm have been on the business for a really long time. Oh, that's so nice. So they don't, they don't move around a lot, um, but it has been great to develop longer-term relationships. I don't love the, like, conveyor belt of people. And um, that's what I love so much about Urban Decay is that we had such a, like, core group for so long.
1: Who has the longest tenure at the company other than you?
0: Um, a woman named Tammy Bartell, who works in PR. She started at, as the receptionist and uh, then kind of quickly moved into sort of being like my part-time assistant slash um, PR and then full-time into PR. And now she's she's uh, in charge of that department. So,
1: Do you know how long she's been there?
0: I think she's been there almost 20 years. Oh my God, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
1: You do. Um, She's
0: very passionate about the brand. And, um, but I always tell her, like, you're the best uh, receptionist slash office manager we ever had. Like, no one's come close to you in that role.
1: (laughs) Do you guys do like special anniversary gifts for people who've been there that long? Um, Yes.
0: So I personally have picked out some snowboards, jewelry. Like, I love picking out things for people that have put their time in and have been there for a long time. So it's not like a clock or a vase. Well, I think. they get that too, uh, <laughs> you know, because we have we were bought by L'Oreal, so through that whole like thing, they get that too. But I always find a way to uh, to get them something special at the same time.
1: At my agency, we're just now starting because we're growing very much. So there's been a lot of growth this past year. So as a retention strategy um, for people who've stayed for two years, they're going to get um, rent the runway. Oh, that's awesome, right? Like this is—that's a big deal, right? Like it's so fun, and to have the company pay for it, your rent the runway would be incredible. I think that's really cool. So we're gonna be starting that. That's a great. And they can decide, like, I want my three months of rent the runway in the summer because I have a lot of parties to go to, or I want it in the winter because I'm traveling. Like they get to choose when they want. That's
0: it. a really cool. But that's you thinking of your people and what's important to them. Like that's why I said I bought a snowboard. We had a guy who. Um, has been working for us since he was 18 years old in, you know, in the, like, shipping and receiving and just, like, you know, operations or, like, changing light bulbs and just making the place work. And he's great. He actually, when I was pregnant with my oldest son, came over to the house and, like, helped put my crib together. Um, but, you know, he had a big anniversary and... um I went out and bought him a snowboard and bindings because he'd never had a new snowboard before. So to me, I'm a big snowboarder. I know it's how the excitement of getting a new board. And so I wanted him to have that same thrill. So I think when you, it's, I think business gifts should be thoughtful, just like personal gifts. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So um, let's dive into your history. Um, I asked you why beauty and um you told me about being sent home in eighth grade for wearing too much makeup. Yes.
0: So I grew up in Texas. Texas is, a you know, big on big hair, big on makeup. And um, I just, I loved makeup. I remember when I, my mom was really strict. She didn't really let me read like all the teen magazines, like 17. But I went over, we went to like family friends house and they had a slightly older daughter and she had 17s lying everywhere. And I was just like in the corner, just like, eating it up, just like looking at everything. And then my mom did relent and she bought me one of those blockbuster makeup sets for Christmas. And I swear it was like the best gift I ever, ever got. And I would take so this is a
1: multi-tiered box oh, that yeah, has everything like one in of it, those right?
0: like blush, eyeshadow, like, you know, like a like a pencil that was a really crappy pencil at the time. And like, you know, kind of ba- probably bad makeup, but I was in love. And um I think it was like the first iteration of Calvin Klein makeup. Is what it was. So I was so excited by it, and um, so I would just like experiment. I would try to recreate looks out of magazines that I would find, and um, you know, I would show up at school. And I just remember one time I got, I was like student of the month because I had good grades. I was a good girl, but they were just like it's just too much makeup. So in Texas, you can imagine in Texas, that's that's kind of saying something. So do you
1: remember the look that you created? I do. It was a super brown smoky eye. Yes. And um, did you have mascara on? Was there a a big cheek I always had mascara on. I don't remember about cheek. I just remember it was like
0: really like, I was like, I want to do like that brown, like sexy, smoky eye thing. And um, it was probably very round, probably not (laughs) elongated at all. It
1: was probably very round and very dark. Um, And what did your mom say when you came home?
0: um, I just remember her... You know, I don't actually remember what she said. I don't remember being in trouble. I think my mom was, you know, she was pretty supportive. Like, okay, if that's what she wants to do. but.
1: And why do you think that she didn't want to give you Seventeen magazine at that point? um, She was
0: very strict Catholic, and I think she thought it would give me ideas. Hmm. So I think she thought they probably talked about, like, dating boys and kissing, and she didn't want me looking at any of that. It wasn't really the fashion or the beauty. I think it was the other mm-hmm. content.
1: I um, I read a lot of like the Teen Beat. Were you? The, le- to- oh
0: yeah, like Tiger Beat yes. and Teen Beat. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Were you allowed to have those? No, because no. there's cute boys in those. Cute boys in those. No.
0: <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, a friend would bring one over, and she didn't say no. It's kind of like I am with my kids and pizza. We don't order it, but if you're at a party, you can have it.
1: Your kids and pizza. Yeah. Uh huh. So tell me about pizza. Oh, I just you know it's.
0: It's not that good for you, so we just don't make it a regular meal at our house. It's just not a meal at our house. Right. But if you go somewhere else, it's fine. Have some pizza.
1: Right. Right. I think that's how, like, some people approach kosher. They're kosher at home, but when you go out, they just do whatever they do. Yeah. Um, so uh, you um, said something to me that I thought was really compelling because I've been there. Um, you were working in advertising... And you told me that you didn't want to spend your whole life agonizing over 30 seconds of cat food copy. Yes. Um, so t- take us back to the sign when you worked in advertising. So
0: um, I was really, I went to the University of North Texas and I should not have gotten a job at Leo Burnett. I was really lucky because I entered this competition for an internship and it was the first year they'd done it. They're still doing it. And it was sponsored by the LA Times and they placed me at Leo Burnett. And I was really excited to have this job. I loved it. Um, but it became apparent to me that like my life, if I wanted to, I was in account management and that wasn't really where my heart was. I was really more of a creative person. And I thought I'm going to be a writer. And then I started thinking about like what I would be writing. And I thought I'm going to be writing cat food copy. Like, I'm not sure if I want to do this. So I just, you know, I kind of went through all the clients at the agency at the time. And the only one I wanted to work on was a makeup company that they had. And I don't think that makeup company is around anymore. But do
1: you remember who it was?
0: I don't even remember Mm -hmm. who it was. It was like a mass brand. Yeah. They come and go. Yeah.
1: More so now.
0: Yes. More so (laughs) now. I always say, you know, what's interesting is when I started, the barriers to entry were incredibly high, but the noise level was very low. And now the barriers to entry are like almost non-existent, but the noise level is extremely high. So the challenges are still there in terms of getting a brand off the ground. They're just really different.
1: So um, back at this time when you won a place at Leo Burnett, what did you have to do to get that job? This is a contest. So Oh, it
0: was it was like an internship you had to like apply for and write an essay and do this, you know, whole thing. And I was just like, I'm going to go win that thing. I'm going to go get it.
1: So it doesn't surprise me that you won it because you do belong in advertising. Yeah. No,
0: I'm not surprised that I won it. I just, um, I wasn't from a big name school Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So I think if I had gone out into the regular job market and tried to, you know, interview, I'm not sure anyone would have gotten past the fact that, you know, I didn't go to Harvard or Wharton or like a lot of the places that their recruits came from. And so I thought this might be my best chance to get in at a place that doesn't really recruit from my school.
1: So, um, when I worked at my first job, it was also in advertising at an Omnicom-owned brand called BBDO. And my job was to make dubs, so make copies of tapes, and actually just like walk them up to the other floors or walk them down to the FedEx. I had to do that too. And that was basically, I think, most of my job. Did you have anything else that was more challenging?
0: Um, Well, I did a lot of that. I I will tell you that I actually feel like I got promoted pretty quickly because I was really good at getting dubs made. (laughs) And um, (laughs) this is really, if you're starting out in your career, I think this is really important to remember. So like I said, I was like in a recruiting class of, you know, people who were starting in account management. And a lot of my peers were people that had MBAs from Harvard or Wharton or went to a big name school. Um, and they did not like having to make dubs. It really, they felt like it might be a little bit beneath their skill set and their degrees. But I was really good at going down to the dub room and hanging out with the guys and getting them to turn my orders around fast. So while their stuff would be languishing and they were late, they couldn't get it out of there and they were in trouble with their boss for not getting their dubs made. Mine were always early, well, you know, made quickly extra copies, like whatever we needed, I could go down there and get a dub made. So don't ever underestimate the power of being good at something very small. I think that's really important. The other thing I was good at was um, I had taught myself, and this sounds like so elementary now because everyone's got a laptop and kids are so good on their computers, but I had in college taught myself how to be really good on what was the Macintosh at the time. And um, so, you know, I remember being in there and one of the senior executives had to make a last minute presentation. And this was, you know, back in the like late 80s or early 90s. And um, it just, you know, being able to make things on your computer wasn't as widespread. And they had a department when you had a department presentation to make and they literally like marker comped everything like with markers and drew out and hand wrote out your presentation. Well there was no time for this. So I did it on the Mac. I found a giant copier and I mounted this guy's presentation and it was in actually like palette and font, which they all thought I I was like a genius. (laughs) So I was like, well you can think I'm a genius all you want. But it's those like ability to do these like little things and to be really resourceful that I think are so important and help drive uh your career in the early stages.
1: I had experiences like that as a temp. So I would get temp jobs in between college, I guess like college breaks and stuff, and um I was really taking these tasks that nobody wanted to do. Um I remember being in like a a, a storage room and like having to reorganize the storage room and like I would do it in like 2 days and they thought it would take, you know, 3 weeks. And um To me, it was so important to do the task well and to be super efficient at it was so important to me too. And I got noticed. I was like a super temp, you know? I was the temp they wanted to keep hiring because I would take these things that were, um, maybe they were crazy mundane or really boring to other people. But for me, it was a chance to just be good at something. It was easy for me to be good at that. And I do think that like everybody should strive to just be good at the very simple things.
0: Yes, I totally agree with you. That's how you get noticed.
1: Yeah, so... um, and you make good money as a temp. So um okay, you were in a corporate environment at an advertising agency not desiring the future which would be to write commercials for cat food. What happened next in your career?
0: Um I was dating a guy who was from California. So I was living in Chicago, dating a guy from California. We both were just really tired of being really cold cuz Chicago is a really cold city. It's a great city but a cold city. And he had been offered a job at a great design company back in California. And it just seemed like a good, great adventure to me to kind of go out West and see what was out there. So I actually went to go work for a promotions agency. That was the job I could find in Orange County because that's where his job was. And um, I didn't love it. It was fast food. It wasn't very exciting. It wasn't even the advertising. It was like promotional and... Um, what does si- that mean? Like coupons and stuff? Like signage in store mm-hmm, and things like mm-hmm. that. And... um Cups, you know, like, but I learned a lot there. I learned about collaboration and um but I always knew that I wanted to do something on my own. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna actually uh I'm gonna just become a freelance writer. I had done a little bit of it in Chicago, I had actually gotten a cover story for the Chicago Reader. And I thought, I'm a good writer. I can do this. And so I started writing little like local articles and I'm starting to get some interesting like travel assignments. And um, then I got a call out of thin air and it was a guy named David Soward. And David called me and he said, hey, um, I got your name from your friend Tara. And David used to be her fiance." And she thinks, uh, she thinks you're exactly the person I need to call. And I'm like, okay, what is it about? And he said, well, I work for a woman named Sandy Lerner. And Sandy's this brilliant woman who started Cisco Systems. And he goes, Sandy thinks she might want to start a makeup company. And I was like, this is exactly what I always wished for. I always loved makeup. I want to do something entrepreneurial. And, you know, I'm kind of over the kind of grind of the agency life. Um, and I wanted to be my own boss, and so I flew up and met with Sandy, and we were just like, "Let's do it." So, okay,
1: we we had to back up because okay. it sounds like the first ten minutes of a Jennifer Lopez movie. Like I put into the universe that I want to do something else, and the phone rings, and here it, it is. It Literally, <laughs> was like the phone ring. But you know, I actually
0: um, was at a conference speaking to young women that want to be entrepreneurs. They're amazing. They're high schoolers, and I one of the things I told them is like, "There's this quote I love, and it's like luck." It, is when preparation meets opportunity. And so, you know, I feel like I had been preparing my whole life, um, whether it was through my passions or work or school or anything I had done, and I just felt like that preparation led to that phone call.
1: So what did Tara know about you to tell David about you?
0: She knew I loved makeup. Mm -hmm. So I met her in Chicago, and it's weird because I was like moonlighting from my agency job teaching aerobics, (laughs) right? And so this girl was in the class who was really lovely, and we got to be friends. And then she introduced me to her friend, Tara. And so Tara and I have gotten to be really good friends, and we're still friends. Like, we have kids, and, like, many, many years later, we still hang out. And um, she knew I loved makeup. She knew I was, like, really good at my marketing job, you know, my marketing advertising job. And she knew I understood youth culture because some of the accounts I had been on at Leo Burnett were, like, Reebok and Nintendo. And so she just thought, Wendy would be perfect for this. And so, and I think even he told me like, well, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you should call my friend Wendy. And so that's kind of how it got off the ground.
1: So this is a sort of um, situation that would play out in my head, like as I'd fall asleep at night. Like I would, I wish that this, you know, this moment would happen for me, right? And like it happened for you. It did, (laughs) Yeah. Like this is incredible. Yeah. Okay, so you met with Sandy. Tell me about that.
0: Um, Sandy's a really... Interesting and unique person. As you can imagine, she and her husband, Len, invented the router, which is, like, changed all of our lives, like, dramatically. Basically, without routers, you don't have the internet. So, Um, and they had started this giant company. And she really felt like there wasn't makeup out there to speak to her, and I felt like there wasn't makeup out there to speak to me. Because if you look back in the mid-90s when we did this, there was um, prestige makeup, and it was pretty boring. It was department stores. There was no, imagine a world, no Sephora, no Ulta. Um, So prestige makeup was sold in department stores. It was pretty much like pink, beige, red, and if they were going out on a limb, they'd do a mauve lipstick. It was crazy. Um, You could find sort of interesting color in the mass market, but it wasn't what it is today where you can find nice high quality stuff. It was kind of chalky. If you found a blue eyeshadow, it kind of looked white when you put it on your lids. Like there was no great pigment out there. And so she and I had just like when we met this like meeting of the minds like, yes, it needs to be like this great quality pigmented color because we want to wear color and there's nothing good quality out there. And at the same time, we both felt like everything was so girly and so sugary sweet. And we were kind of like grungy, you know, feminists that wanted to like kind of spin it on its head. And we were like, let's not knock on the door gently of the cosmetics department. Let's knock it down. Like that was kind of our philosophy. And so, you know, we named, we were like, let's call it urban something. And, you know, someone said, I think it was actually Len said, like, call it urban decay
1: you really d- you did what you set out to do.
0: We did. Yes. And I kind of thought at the beginning like this will be a great project. I'll do this for like a couple years. It'll be super fun. I don't know where it's going to go. And here I am still doing it cuz it's a passion. And it's as much a passion about like the makeup now as it is about cultivating other women and mentoring other women and inspiring young women to be entrepreneurs and telling my stories to let them know like it can happen and you can do it and you can will it into reality.
1: I mean, you've done that too. There's a a flock of entrepreneurs that are doing this because they've seen you do this. I mean, in so many ways, not just brand owners, but freelance makeup artists, freelance hairstylists, they they saw what you did and now they're doing whatever their version of it is.
0: Right. And I think, you know, the beauty influencers are, you know, they have their own brands now. Mm -hmm. I think it's really amazing. I always say like one of the coolest things I think we did with Urban Decay is we really helped along with some other social forces, like help democratize beauty. Because really, it used to be, you know, like the it, corporate executive, usually a man in a, you know, in a tower, you know, corner office, deciding what the standard of beauty was. And I always say, like, most of us didn't fit it. Most of us aren't tall enough, pretty enough, white enough, feminine enough, skinny enough, none of it, you know. And... um, but really, we're all enough. We're all really beautiful. And that's really the point of Urban Decay, right? Is, like, if you just scratch the surface of a crumbling brick wall, it's really beautiful. You know? Like, there's more to people than first glance. And so, um, kind of back to this whole dom- democratization of beauty, we really felt like if we can just, like, kind of make people think about it differently and not subscribe to these typical notions of beauty... um we can kind of change the world and how people feel about themselves. And then, you know, you think about like, then Sephora showed up, right? And so you had a more crazier play, retail playground to work in that they were more open to new and different things than a department store. And then you had social media show up and that was kind of a slow build, but then once it exploded, it really exploded. And then all of a sudden people were seeing images of people that look like themselves and not just images of these perfect models. And realizing, like, I can create these great looks and they look awesome on this person. And, you know, it just, it just fueled itself. And so I feel like it really turned the industry around.
1: So let's talk about the images that you and I grew up looking at, right, as idealized versions of beauty. They were all created by men with probably very few women in the room. Probably, yes. Or maybe zero women in the room. Um, and I, I think about that a lot because I don't, I don't know why I ended up in advertising-ish worlds. I was always just drawn. I think I wanted to be part of pop culture. Um, but I feel like now I realize, like, the reason I'm here is because when my team is, uh, you know, planning a shoot or creating content, like, we're we're, we're, we're all women, number one, all very different women. And um, we're creating for ourselves, right? Not an idealized version of somebody else, but for ourselves. Right. And I think that's why I'm doing this, because I get to sort of set the record straight you know, yeah, I think that's a big part
0: of why we did it was to, it was all about empowering women. It was all about self-expression. And, you know, I've told this story a hundred times, so I hope, you know, whoever's listening hasn't heard it from me before. But, you know, when I was about 16, I remember walking out of church and the, the, the parish priest came up to me and he's like, you're hiding behind a mask of makeup. You're wearing too much. You're hiding yourself. And I'm like, I'm not hiding anything. I'm telling you a story. I'm showing you who I am. And so it I, it was kind of a really pivotal moment for me when I realized, like, you know, no one can hold me down. No one can, like, stifle my self-expression. And so I don't think it was looking back, I'm very conscious about, like, that that was a pivotal moment. I don't think I necessarily realized it then. But, you know, that really changed my perspective on who could tell me what to look like and what to wear. And I felt that way, too, when we started Urban Decay. I felt I felt it for guys, too. You know, like, they weren't ever allowed to wear makeup or anything else. And I, re- I remember just recently we were looking back on, like, old brand statements. And, you know, one of the original things I wrote was, like, this is makeup for girls and boys who want to show the world who they are and put their own stamp on it. So, you know, I do think there's something about, like, not – you know, commoditizing women and not creating these kind of aspirational images that you have to feel bad about to, you know, like, oh, I don't look like her. I have to wear this makeup. So I look more like her. That's not what Urban K was ever about. Urban K was like, here's my story. And I've wanted that for guys too.
1: Well, I think what your brand did is it um, changed the definition of what aspiration can be, right? So aspiration used to be like the yacht and Capri or the private plane, right? That's how brands showed aspiration. We can point to many um, departments or prestige brands who mm-hmm. do that still today. Um, but aspiration, and I really do believe that your brand led us this way, is about um how do I feel about myself? You know, am I am I feeling complete today? Right? And what is my inner beauty? Do I feel confident? Am I at ease? do i am I searching for serenity? right? That's what you what aspiration looks like today in in the beauty industry. I think that's a great definition. That's awesome. So I'm so curious about this. Like so you're, Newly in, in California, Tara talks to Dave, who talks to you, and you get to Sandy. In that moment when you guys are planning, like, let's let's invent this brand, were you um thinking, oh, I'm an employee of this brand? Did you realize you're a partner in this brand? Um, I think at
0: first I wasn't savvy enough to think about that. I um but we sat down and um, you know, David was that was his job. He was the business manager, so he's like, here's the deal. And you know, partnership and the whole thing, and I was like, "This is great." You know, how old
1: were you at this time? I was just turned. Was I twenty seven? This is amazing. Yeah. And then um, Sandy. So I don't know her, but I would have imagined that she's pretty corporate, coming from the world that she was in. No, no,
0: no. Okay. No, so no, tell no, me about no, no. Sandy. Sandy's not corporate at all.
1: Sandy had. When I met Sandy,
0: she had purple hair and uh, rode a Harley so um it she was um what i loved about sandy was she um she was this contrast everything about her was a contrast so she was kind of like biker chick who lived in a like french chateau that she had built like with every detail all perfect and a rose garden out front like everything about her was a contrast she seemed hard on the surface but she like was super sweet and like would baby talk to her animals, you know. So I just she was a really interesting person, um, like wicked, super smart, and yet super into makeup at the same time. And not that that should be a contrast, but it just was, you know. It wasn't what I expected from a tech entrepreneur, and so um, it was really refreshing to meet her. And I think one of the coolest things about her was that once we felt a connection. She, she's the one that made me believe like this can be done, right? Because she had done it in a man's world in tech. And I would have never thought in a million years, like, let's shake up the beauty industry. Like, so I think her just having done it before, she just believed she could do anything. And then she passed that on to me. So now I feel like it's my job to pass that on to other people.
1: So was she the the first investor? Like, did she found the company in the beginning? She's the, yeah. Mm-hmm. She,
0: Sandy is the founder founder. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and um, yeah, she invested and got it off the ground.
1: And do you remember like your first big, like chaotic day at work? Like, do you remember feeling like, oh my God, this is crumbling. This is too hard. This doesn't make sense.
0: I don't ever remember feeling like it's too hard. I do remember like sitting up, being up all night. You know, like just having to grind 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 to get stuff done and get it launched i I got it launched in probably I mean, I met with her in September, and we probably shipped product in like January. Wow, yeah, I mean, I made it happen super, super fast. like I bought stock materials, I made connections. I used one person to meet another person to meet another person. um, we made it happen really, really, really quickly and um So I was up late at night and I didn't, there was a lot of dumb stuff that I did. Like I always tell this story about how, um, you know, when you look at those UPC codes, the first like five digits or six digits are your brand, right? You register it with the code council, which I called them. I'd call them on the phone and register the brand. And then you assign the next five numbers. And then there's an algorithm that gives you a check digit to make sure the number's like valid and accurate. And... I didn't know that if you just call the label printer guy that they have a like program that does it. No, I was up at night like doing the algorithm on my calculator. <gasps> so, like dumb stuff, like you make dumb mistakes that suck and waste time, but you don't really know when you're starting out like what are the dumb things and what are the important things. I mean, we were talking about dubs at the beginning of this conversation and people might think that's a dumb thing, but it was actually a really important thing. So it's hard to know like where the investment of your time you know when you have to like get into the weeds and the minutia and really grind out at it and when you need to just brush that away and delegate so those are those are lessons you learn learned as you go
1: so this is 20 years is that how long it's been it's been like 24 years okay so 24 years um let's talk about your sort of emotional growth journey cuz i imagine you've evolved as a human yep. as a, as the company has um have you seen any like personal emotional growth in in that time period like where you kind of like A nervous person before and now you're calm, or like, you know, were you kind of stuck in self doubt and now you're confident? Like, what kind of emotional journey have you been on as the brand has been growing? Um,
0: I think I'm calmer now. Um, I think I used to get a lot more like um, wound up about things. And now I've realized like all that little stuff, like you can work around it. It's not that big a deal. Um, And I think I also used to expect the same from other people as I did from myself. And that's not realistic. So other people are not going to be able to keep pace with you in other some ways. Right. But in other ways, they're going to exceed you. And so you have to really remember, like, not everybody else is you. And to be a good manager, you really have to like take, take a step back and try to help that person, like, really maximize their potential and their strengths. And, um, so I've really learned that. And I think being a mom has helped me really learn that. I actually did notice that, like, some of my the people I would hire that had already had kids, like, they were really good managers. And they were really good about managing their time. So I do think um, that I embraced that when I had kids and really tried to maximize time with them. And it made me a better manager. And it made me not sweat the small stuff as much.
1: Right. So um, you were just talking about... Um, you know, supporting people in the way that they need support. Um, And we did a workshop recently with my coach, it, and it was our leadership team. And everyone was going around the room talking about what kind of, um, I guess, voice calls to them when they're about to make a decision. And most of the room was like, I want some data or I need some facts to support it. And I'm like, totally gut, like totally gut. And like, as I was hearing people speak about what motivates them or what gives them comfort in decision making, I realized like, Oh right, I can't just assume that everyone just has confidence in the first decision that comes into their head the way that I do. Like they have a process, right? And I need to respect that process, right? Um, but I also can't expect them ever to have what I have because they just operate differently.
0: Yeah, a lot of people do operate differently, and I have had brilliant people who work for me who, you know, love the data based decision. I'm more like you. I like to feel it from my gut, but I like to check in with those people that are that make decisions differently, and really you know, question. I don't really question my decision, but I like to, like, do a double check on it and make sure, like, I'm not completely off base.
1: And um, has that desire changed since you've been acquired? Like, is being owned by the giantest global beauty company changed um, your reliance on your gut? Um,
0: I think because there are so many people in an organization like that that are data-reliant, um, I think it's more important now that I like say what my gut thinks, you know. Um, I felt I had something come up the other day and I was just like, I don't really feel it. And they're like, oh, but, you know, they did research and it, it turned out really well. I'm like, I'm still not feeling it. So I just have to put that
1: out there, you know. Well, it's interesting because I think at every event I've been to in the past few years where there was like this most senior leadership on stage talking about where their strategic company is going in the future, they all all said and the kind of using the same words just jumbled together that they want their teams to be more entrepreneurial right they want them to think like they're you know smaller more nimble brands um and that's just so hard for them to do because of everything you just spoke about right, right. um and being gut driven is so scary for people who are, are fearing that they're going to get fired you right. know basically it comes back to fear of like you know financial insecurity i think and most of these things um so the more the more founders and people who are part of these larger organizations who actually talk about their gut, the more other people are going to learn how to trust theirs as well. So you're doing a service that, you know, the leadership actually wants you to do. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's not comfortable, but they need it. They need it. I, I do have to give
0: credit to L'Oreal though. They do let people fail mm-hmm. and they don't lose their jobs. You know what I mean? Like it's okay as long as you take a position and you go for it. Like that's encouraged. So there's positive, there's, you know, positives to even making database decisions that may not turn out right.
1: So um, the last topic I want to talk about is I asked you what your mantra is, and you told me balance, where's your balance point with money and time, Right. right? So talk to me about what that means to you.
0: Well, it's not just money and time. To me, it's with everything, right? It's so, I always say, like, what's your balance point with, like, giving back and like trying to make money, right? And what's your balance point with family and work? What's your balance point between like, you know, anything that you do in your life? It's always finding that perfect balance. And it's really, really hard to do if you've ever been on one of those balance boards. It's like you're working hard the whole time. Your core is totally engaged and you're just trying to like, you know, keep from hitting one side or the other. And I think it's like that with anything in life. It's just like finding that right balance between, you know, letting people into your life and setting boundaries that protect you, you know. And it's it's any, anything you bring up, there's got to be balance.
1: So I was in a situation recently where um, one of our clients, a client I love and adore, um, had a big thing going on. And they said, oh, like, be available, I don't know, 7 p.m. to do a call with us. And um I didn't realize till later that night my son's wrestling match was at seven. So there was another person on my team that said, Call me, you know, not not Jody, but call the other person. And as I was walking into the school gym, I was like, Oh, are they gonna call me because they're forgetting to call her. And then I was able to just let it go. Like this is life, you know? Right. If I don't pick up, they'll call her. Right. And but that kind of thing would have given me a lot of anxiety. You know, I think I've sort of mellowed a little bit too. Like, and if it's not seven, it could be eight, you know? Yeah. They can find me later. Um, but that kind of stuff is hard to navigate. And I think like, you know, this idea of balance or equilibrium, it's it's not the sort of like, parachute I can just throw over my life and just accept that, like, things are going to be easy to navigate. Like, each instance, I have to think about, like, what's important to me in this moment um, and what is the consequence, you know, if they can't reach me at 7 p.m.
0: Right. Because there's—every situation's different, right? There might There might be occasions where that 7 p.m. phone call does trump your son's wrestling mm-hmm. match. Mm-hmm. Probably not very many, but there might be a few, and you just—it's ha- really hard to navigate which one of those—which ones of those are more important than others, but— Good yeah. for you for going to the wrestling match.
1: Yeah. And guess what? They didn't call at 7. No. No. And I don't even know if they called 9. They might have called 9 a.m. the next morning, right? So, like, the the wor- my point is, I guess, I'm learning to not worry as much, which feels better. Right. Um, And I think because I'm thinking about m- these balance points, as you call them.
0: Yeah. You just can't. You've got to, like, keep your eye on the prize, you know? So, I was at a really awesome birthday party it was a surprise birthday party. It was um in Cabo. It was really amazing. And at the dinner, I was sitting with a couple I'd never met before. They were from the Midwest. And I was talking about, you know, work-life balance with them and my kids being, you know, so important to me. And um the guy looked at me and he goes, Your children are your first ministry. And I just thought that is really a great way to think about it, you know, just they are your first ministry and you have to, they trump everything, I think, and at least in my book. I mean, other people may have a different balance, but the, I always go back to them as like, okay, what do they need right now? Do they need me or do they not need me? Because sometimes they kind of don't need me, don't want me, and they want to go be independent and be on their own. So again, there's more balance there as they get older.
1: I think about um, the time with my kids as like, of course, I feed them breakfast, although they could probably make breakfast themselves at this point. But um, I think about um my desire for spontaneous time with them like that's what fills my bucket right so like the the making breakfast or the you know driving them to wherever doesn't really fill my bucket like i right. do it but the spontaneous time so just like running around or playing a game or going somewhere we haven't been before or having adventures whether they're in the house or out and about um that's what fills me up so i think that that that's um that's my barometer is my bucket empty Right, then I need to fill it up. So like they're always going to get what they need out of me because they'll find me, right? But I I think about like what do I need out of motherhood, yeah. right? And that's what I need. I need spontaneous fun with them. So um, I'm just so grateful to have you on the show. You're such an inspiration to me oh, and so many thanks. people. It was really fun to talk to you. Thank you. I'm so grateful. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And I hope you enjoyed this interview with Wendy. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast.